The Extremis Publishing Podcast is endorsed by Heart 200, Scotland's most exciting road trip. Find out more at heart200.scot. Hello and welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie. It's my pleasure today to be joined by Robert Murray, who's the author of The Spirit of Robbie Burns and also The Grocer's Boy, A Slice of His Life in 1950 Scotland. In his first book, Robbie explains the trials and tribulations of a grocery delivery boy in 1950s Tayside, all the way until he became the youngest manager of any William Lowe branch in Scotland. Robbie has now written a new book, the Grocer's Boy Rides Again, which takes his story from the early 1960s all the way up to the end of the decade, and explains more than a few surprises along the way. Robbie, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure, Tom. Well, I must say I very much enjoyed your new book. It takes us in some quite unusual directions, uh, starting in uh, traditional, what I imagine we could call traditional grocery uh, retailing, uh, through to further education, uh, the Grocers Institute, and then the corporate world after that. It sounds like it was an exciting journey. Well, it's a journey that uh, <laughs> came about step by step. Um, the word career didn't come into my vocabulary very much at school. We didn't. I didn't um, set out with a career in mind. In my educational um, experience, I left school at the age of 15, I found enough knowledge of myself to know that I enjoyed working in the retail grocery trade. I think it was the, the contact with people, the, the, the busyness, the uh, active life, and a hard life, um, long hours and um, low pay. Retail grocery was described in those days, although I didn't know it at the age when I was a messes boy or an apprentice, but I later learned it was described as the Cinderella of the retail trades, largely because of the long hours and relatively low pay. So I had no plans as a career. Um, things developed in strange ways. Now you describe, certainly at the beginning of your book, uh, some of the challenges that were involved in traditional counter-service, but you also explain the period of rapid transition that was taking place at that time um, as groceries gave way to the supermarkets that we recognise today. What do you think were the, the key changes that were taking place at that point? The key changes, strangely enough, they began in very small ways. Um, for example, in the William Lowe experience I had in my early days, we dealt with bulk products, bulk cheese, bulk butter, bulk lard, uh, biscuits came in big boxes. Um, to cut a long story short, pre-packaging hadn't actually taken place. And one of my first observations of all of that was when I moved from the Carnoustie branch 
to Dundee and in my first branch which I managed uh, it was a small shop consequently uh, there was no better way to um, provide the, uh, the the stock other than in pre-packaging because th there wasn't space so somewhere along the line decisions had been made um, by the company to start pre-packaging and I think that that was the beginning of the changes that came about because what followed was self-selection and then followed by fully blown self-service. None of that would work while there was bulk products like cheese and butter being handled. So the precursor to uh, self-selection and self-service was pre-packaging. So th that was my first tiny observation of changes coming about. Now, William Lowe, which is the company that you worked for, um, has long been regarded as one of the most respected and immediately recognisable of Scottish brands. Um, although the company ceased trading in 1994, uh, it's still remembered with great affection uh, to the point that some museums, such as the McManus Museum and Art Gallery in Dundee, uh, have uh, displays which remember uh, William Lowe in its heyday. Um, do you think it's one of those kind of companies that are so iconic that uh, its name will live on for many years to come? I think it's a name that will go in the history books of uh, retailing, but um, I don't know. Um, there are names, if one goes back to um, the grocery trade with the Liptons and the Galbraiths, uh, Allied Suppliers, these are names of um, yesteryear, there are names which they, they do still appear in in books, factual stories uh, of the development of the retail grocery trade. Um, strange enough, William Lowe & Company, I remember the date vividly, <laughs> I wasn't there, <laughs> but 1868 was when William Lowe & Company was founded. Strange enough, the same year that Sainsbury's was founded, for example. And I've, I've read up on the background of uh, the retail grocery development in Scotland. And around that same period, the 1860s, 70s, 80s, were times when the multiple grocery store was uh, developing. Uh, largely, um, probably solely, on the basis of the individual aspirations of one man that would start off these companies. That's how... I saw it, and that's how it all um, began to began to take shape. Now, in a remarkable twist of fate, you explain in your book how a fateful advertisement in a newspaper led you to a completely different change of pace in your career, uh, and one which would take you from grocery retailing uh, into the world of uh, further education. How did that go? <laughs> it was it was quite uh, surreal, I suppose. I um, I moved at the age of, just coming up for the age of 19 to my first branch in Dundee. Um, after 18 months, wearing on nearly two years, I moved to a second branch, larger branch. Incidentally, the larger branch was self-selection. So I began to see the changes coming about uh, in that respect. I then had uh, a, a strange move. Um, with a very quick interview in the back shop one day the area manager said uh, I'd like to um, uh, move you on to another branch uh, the Perth Road branch in Dundee immediately in my mind 
stepped back and wondered why this was happening because Perth Road was still then a counter-service branch. I thought I'd left counter-service behind me. But the area manager explained, no, we're, we're building a new supermarket next door to Perth Road and it'll be a fully blown self-service store and you're going to be the manager. So I was still there, um, age 23, with this prospect. And then, strangely enough, out of the blue, um, one of my in-laws had passed on a tiny little snippet from a newspaper which said, lecturer in distributive trades required commercial college Dundee, qualifications required uh, grocery institute exam passes, certificate in retail management and I knew instinctively that nobody else the, the certificate in retail management was a new course and it had only run for the last 18 months or so in Dundee and I knew nobody else uh, on that course who also had a grocers institute qualification so I realised that I was in quite a unique situation I, I had the qualifications but therein lay a huge problem because did I want to leave the bustling uh, retail grocery trade or not? And I had to have a very fine, long thought about this. Um, a few things came into play that I hadn't actually thought about until that very moment of this possibility of making a move. Num the first of these would be that security and I have to say here that <laughs> the success of a grocery branch manager, or indeed I suppose any branch manager in any business, is the success of the one's stock result, i.e. making your net profit. Are you making profit? <laughs> it's a very simple statement to make. But the grocery retail manager in those days would be taking stock every three months. And in effect, if you had a bad stock, as the term went, uh, that would be a very nervous moment and if you had a second bad stock uh, quite a seriously uh, worrying moment and um, and so there was a nervousness about the security and bad stocks and I'll give some examples of that Tom um, self-service meant that you were laying all your business through checkouts and hitherto you had people at the counter serving the customers, dealing with their purchases. Suddenly, everything, your whole profit depended on what was going through a checkout. In my case, in my one example in self-selection in, in the branch I moved to, I had one checkout lady. I had to be absolutely clear in my mind that that one checkout operator was efficient, and honest and I wouldn't know until three months came along whether I had actually made a profit and and that hung uh, very seriously in my mind I was there was something I'd never imagined but as a manager I began to be quite serious about knowing where did the security of all of this lie another example would be uh, in the receipt of grocery uh, order materials stock coming into the business in a smaller branch as a manager in a small branch I did that personally I checked every item coming in I checked 
uh, every single item on any delivery that came in to me. As delegation started and the, the, the management of a larger unit, that had to be delegated. That again, you could argue the manager's job was to make sure you've selected the correct staff and you've, you've got um, trust in everything that's going on. But if there's any nervousness about that, that's a second area where I could be buying stock, but am I buying the stock I've ordered? Uh, has something disappeared and never never arrived on my shelves? So there were large areas of security that came into my thoughts. I went on to have an interview about the commercial college um, opportunity, and I discovered that the salary offered was quite <laughs> quite a, a drop from what I had enjoyed. I had been enjoying relatively good money uh, plus bonuses because of my uh, stock results. Everything was going very well. And somewhere around, I, in, the, in the time um, I recall, somewhere I was earning between £1,200-£1,400 a year. The grocery uh, lecturer job was going to go down to something like 900. So I had the huge question mark in my mind. Do I want to proceed in a management retail grocery context with the new worries and in a new world of self-service? And do I want to drop to 900 pounds per year? It was a, <laughs> a very difficult decision. And after all, I had been an employee of William Loan Company since the age of 12. As a Mrs. boy, as an apprentice, I'd been extremely well looked after. I'd been uh, invited to, uh, to day off, take days off for uh, studying for my uh, certificate in management principles. And so it seemed a harsh thing for me to even consider telling William Loan Company, thank you very much. Thanks for all the help and development you've given me, and now I'm leaving. And uh, that struck a very unhappy chord with me. I did not enjoy that aspect of it. But I began to seriously consider, uh, I think perhaps at the end of it, Tom, uh, by nature I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a nervous person. I think I probably take a lot of worries home with me. Um, and I learned from more senior managers uh, on occasions when I chatted with more senior managers uh, the debate, the discussion invariably came round to their worries I could hear senior managers who'd been in the trade for many years expressing their doubts and fears about their stock results and in my young 23 year old brain <laughs> I began to think here are men that I know now, chatting with them, who might be in their 40s, expressing these issues. And so therefore, it gave me a big question in my mind. Is this the future I want? Am I equipped and strong enough mentally to tackle all of that? So perhaps it was a weak thing to do, difficult, difficult uh, decision to make, but I made it, <laughs> for better or for worse. And you describe in your book a tremendous sense of camaraderie amongst you and your other colleagues within further education. Was that something that was typical of the time? Well, I have to say, as a manager, 
as a young person, I was between my 19-year-old and up to the age of 23. As a manager, I immediately recognised there's a, there's a distinct gap between staff and management. Uh, I had to I had to be quite serious in my outlook. There was no uh, easy um, relationship to have and yet uh, retain authority and, and control without being too serious about that. And when I went into further education, for the first time in my working life, I found I had colleagues. I could I could speak with people in the staff room. I uh, I enjoyed the camaraderie. Uh, it was uh, a joy. Uh, it was it opened a new world for me. And um, <laughs> obviously, I was going home in the evenings with no worries of sales, stocks, losses, the checkouts, uh, stock tickings and uh, uh, so on. So it opened a new world for me and um, yes it, it was a huge uh, plus again in my um, existence of uh, having a, a less trouble-free uh, working life. And the college that you talk about in your book, the Dundee Commercial College, uh, at that point was actually split over a number of different locations throughout the city. Um, that must have taken a bit of getting used to after having managed um, a commercial premises. <laughs> yes. Uh, again, um, I've just described changes in the retail grocery trade um, in, in, in their methodology of how things were being transferred from counter-service shops into self-service shops. I, I took it for granted when I moved into further education that the way things were working there was that we had, uh, fundamentally, the whole college was made up of several individual units. Uh, annexes, I think, was the word that was used. So the main, the main building was an old primary school in the Cowgate uh, area of Dundee. That's where the principal was housed, that's where he had his secretaries, that's where the, the admin offices were. But there were uh, other annexes around the city and I began to realise that it was all about the development of a college which obviously, <laughs> looking back I could understand, you couldn't build a college with X number of rooms to house an unknown number of classes, an unknown number of lecturers. So the slow growth of further education had to be paced very carefully. So I realised the way it was working was as new courses came on stream, so a new annex would be opened up. And so these annexes became little units. Ultimately, someday, they would all join together and become part of Commercial College, which ultimately was built in the Constitution Hill area of Dundee. But that, that was the origins of the... the, the um, that was the strategy, obviously, of the Education Department of Dundee City at the time, to make use of uh, closed-down primary school premises in the city. It was a very good plan and um, it would be an economic way of developing uh, a college. After a number of successful years 
lecturing at the college, um, you discovered another advertisement, uh, one which would lead you much further away than Dundee. <laughs> Again, I said earlier, Tom, I mean, I had no career plan in mind. Having said that, I said earlier, of course, I'd moved into further education uh, with a drop in salary. There were only fundamentally two ways that I could tackle and regain some momentum in my salary uh, level. One was to aspire to teach higher level uh, subjects, higher level um, subjects and, and take on um, different groups of students, uh, but mainly by improving qualifications. And I still to this day find it quite amazing that as a, a, a junior school, school leaver at the age of 15, with um, um, grocery exams behind me and uh, a certificate in management principles, uh, that's, that's the only academic qualifications I had. Uh, I really began to see my way ahead in salary uh, levels was to, to embark on improving my qualifications. So I did, I set out with a programme to furnish myself with uh, Scottish O grades and uh, higher grades. I started to think along these lines with the idea someday, ultimately, of uh, going, going to study for a degree. That's the one way in which I could try to regain my salary level. So it's an interesting thing because, I mean, the odds must have been stratospheric that not only one but two of those amazing opportunities came completely out of the blue with those uh, advertisements. <laughs> the second one taking you right, right down to the south of England. Well, I was enjoying life uh, in the college. Uh, I began to, after five years, I, uh, I felt comfortable. Uh, again, as I said earlier, with my colleagues and my immediate uh, boss, there was only two of us, actually, in the distributive trades section at that point in time. Um, that was beginning to develop slightly more. But again, um, one day, just by sheer chance, a grocery magazine was lying on a desk um, in the staff room <laughs> at the same spot where the janitor came in with the tray and cups and saucers. <laughs> and lo and behold, uh, the, 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 the magazine was open at a page uh, where the job adverts appeared. And there was an advert there for a, a training development officer uh, in England um, and the employer was the Grocers Institute, a body which I knew well, I'd studied under the Institute, I'd been in touch with the Institute, I'd published a little pamphlet about the careers within the grocery trade so the Institute knew my name but it was a sheer piece of luck. Effectively when I looked at the ad it was going to almost double my salary with a car and all the usual expenses, uh, but this was a post based um, in England uh, as a training development officer. The role was going to be uh, training development within companies. The training boards were being set up at that point in time and the, the impact on training inside the retail grocery trade uh, was was being administered by the Distributive Industry Training Board itself, who were going to set a levy. So every company would pay a levy, which would go into a fund, and this 
would be used to develop training within that industry. In the case of the grocery trade, what the Institute was seeking to do was to, in a sense, take further education largely out of college and get training inside a company. So a large part of this was to encourage companies to find the personnel inside their own bill, inside their own organisation to develop training. And <laughs> it's a rather staggering thing to think that my patch where I was going to uh, develop training was uh, north of the River Thames, south of the River Humber and east of the M1 motorway. <laughs> Uh, that whole area was what was being advertised. However, I made uh, an immediate phone call. It seemed like uh, it was heaven sent for me uh, in every respect. To cut a long story short, after uh, <laughs> a trip to London, I secured the job and found myself based uh, in St Ives, Huntington, which was more or less central in my in my patch. Well, it's, it's obvious from reading your book that you approached your time in further education with great enthusiasm, that you took a great deal of time to make sure that the uh, syllabus was being communicated effectively and that it's, it's very obvious that you, you took a great deal of care and concern for the, the students that you were working with. How do you feel those experiences set you up for your time in the Grocers Institute and how did you make use of those skills when you were down there? I think uh, the background of further education was very important. It gave me an insight into uh, not only the Grocers Institute courses, but of course the city and guilds uh, as a body uh, was very active in running retail distributive uh, courses. And one of the things which impressed me greatly that while I was working in the college, uh, in, in the early part of my employment in the college, I was sent on a course, a week's course, to London. It was based uh, accommodation and lecture rooms in the, some parts of the University of London. But it, it was a, an amazing course. We heard from Lord Sainsbury himself. We heard from trade union top people. We visited Marks and Spencer's head office at Marble Arch. We visited and saw the behind the scenes in Harrods. And one of the things that struck me was that uh, one of the after dinner speakers made the comment that the retail grocery trade had been a Cinderella for far too long and it was time to start improving training, education. And after that one week's course, I went home and felt that there was some real merit in what we, really, what we were really trying to do inside further education. So when the time came to go back and work in the Institute, I, ha I had a much more confident feel about the place of further education in the whole scheme of things. And then the idea of adding on training to that whole uh, uh, process uh, was quite interesting to me because it was going to be the two arms of uh, training and education which was was the future for improving efficiencies and and um, 
the management of uh, retail grocery stores. Well, during your time at Dundee Commercial College, uh, it's very obvious that you energetically steered a, a fascinating course which would give people a real insight into many different aspects of retail and distribution. And from then, of course, moving down to the uh, Grocers Institute um, in London, uh, it's also very clear that you had this this um, enthusiasm for your work and for obviously communicating the way in which that industry was changing. But then, all of a sudden, there was another change. <laughs> That's right. Um, I, I spent something like 18 months with the Institute. We were developing training courses. As I said earlier, the whole point was we, if we could identify sufficient uh, individuals within uh, small companies, uh, medium-sized companies, supermarkets, uh, whatever, if we could identify a group of individuals, we were organising training courses uh, for these people to become trainers inside their own uh, businesses. There was a huge feeling of satisfaction of doing that because it meant businesses could set up their own training inside and make use, of course, of the further education facility in their own area. But then one day the training development officers had a meeting in London and uh, as was the case when we had a day's meeting we were catching up on administrative things and hearing the latest news and and um, sitting down and discussing uh, aspects of developing our own work. There was a team of six training development officers I should say that covered the whole of the UK but uh, one day as was the case we <laughs> went off to the local uh, pub and it's a standard thing it would be half a pint of uh, beer and a, a beef sandwich uh, but in on that particular day I overheard somebody behind me say I hear what's the Philip are looking for a training officer in Dundee and I couldn't believe my ears uh, here's a, a tiny little advert that taken me out of the grocery trade into commercial college an advert which turned up on a page within the staff room took me to the grocers institute and here was a comment <laughs> behind me about a job in Dundee and I'd only left Dundee 18 months or so before um, but I went home that evening made a phone call and to cut a long story short found myself having an interview with the managing director of one of the divisions of a company called Watson Phillip which was in those days um, purely a wholesale uh, uh, grocery business and that's what took me there so I had three totally unexpected pieces of fortune good fortune that uh, I find myself after these years of dropping my salary and wondering if I'd made a huge error in leaving William Lowe Company in the first place I felt I'd regained a large part of my earning power but equally and more importantly I think I'd gained a, a wider knowledge of the whole business of uh, training, education and the grocery trade and the prospect of coming back to work in Dundee uh, seemed, seemed again to be too good to be true. Well one thing that runs right the way through your story in the 1960s and which connects your experiences with William Lowe, the commercial college 
the Grocers Institute and then obviously Watson and Philip, is that you were really driving knowledge at a time when there was enormous flux in the market. The industry was changing, attitudes were changing, society was changing. Um, and it seems to me that you were very much at the forefront of it. You were um, making sure that that knowledge was being properly disseminated and that everybody was able to make the best use of it. That's right, Tom. One doesn't actually feel <laughs> aware of that at the time. Uh, I was aware of the changes in the grocery trade in a practical fashion, moving from counter-service to self-service. I was aware of the opportunities in further education and indeed in the five years I was in the college I did see a growth in the number of students and there was an improving attitude towards um, further education and the Grocers Institute have to be given huge credit for their investment they had quite large sums of money they were the national i.e. UK wide body that uh, held together the communications and the driving force within the, the grocery trade. Um, so they, they were a central force on marketing, legal issues, training issues, and so the Grocers Institute held great sway within the trade. So that was highly important, and of course I, I began to see all of that. I didn't link exactly the crest of the wave I was on but that's in fact yes very true Tom I, I, I saw the changes coming through from a practical s sphere a further education sphere and a training uh, aspect as well all of these in their own ways were finding new things to go so in the 1960s if I sum it all up in that period of 10 years, each of these three constituent parts of uh, life connected with the grocery business, they were in the forefront, things were changing. The government obviously itself, by introducing training boards, was obviously aware of the need, not just in retail distribution, but there was a training board for every industry in the whole of the UK. There was a, an emphasis on improving productivity, efficiency and uh, managerial aspects and that that was yes quite quite a, a unique combination of events I think Tom that took me through from the beginning to the end of the of that decade. And on that note that subject of change it would be remiss of me not to ask given that your book starts just prior to the Cuban Missile Crisis and continues all the way until the first human being to land on the moon in 1969 how did it feel that period of cultural transition? I mean, what was what was your own personal take on the events that you were witnessing? Oh, um, <laughs> I was a workaholic, Tom. That's the first thing to say. I spent a lot of time preparing uh, lecture notes. If it was in the college, if I take the grocery trade, I worked long hours in a practical sense. Uh, in the college, I was preparing and writing notes for teaching purposes and in the Grocers Institute we were creating new training courses. I spent most of my time doing all of that but <laughs> the changes that were going on suddenly were happening around me. Um, I, 
not quite sure what would stand out for me most of all in all of that. I think politically and in the context of, uh, um, and I think <laughs> looking back we've still got the same problems if, uh, if that makes any sense. I, I, I would say that probably these will always be the, the main elements in, in, in life, politics and uh, social aspects of living. I didn't set out in, in my first book to <laughs> write any social history of the 1950s, nor indeed did I set out in the 19, to write the social aspects of changes in life in the 1960s. But all I would say now, today, as we speak, with the giant supermarkets and the huge pressures on um, large companies to eke out their share of the market, uh, it, it now is, puts into focus that what was going on in my life in the 50s and in the 60s was in fact the early stages of change uh, of this continuum that's going on. I don't know where it will be in 10 or 20 years. Uh, there's a whole lot of theories about where it will be in 10 or 20 years. But right now, uh, we've got a very buoyant uh, and highly competitive world. And in my early days on my message bike, I didn't think I'd be seeing in the, in the 2020s uh, vans doing deliveries. Uh, in other words, the modern, the modern message boy uh, delivering from a van. But yes, the, the changes that were happening then were the, the first real changes that probably had happened for the previous 50, 60, 70 years. They were beginning to change in the 1950s. And I'm looking back now, yes, that was the precursor for what we have seen in the last 20 years. Well, I must say, Robbie, I thoroughly enjoyed your book because it fascinates on so many different levels, uh, whether you're talking about the retail industry and very much being on the, the, the sharp end of uh, delivering good service to customers, or whether you're talking about further education, where you genuinely were a kind of pioneer who really was there at the beginning of a movement which was going to change so many people's lives, uh, through to training uh, and detailing the changes in the industry uh, at a, a really pivotal moment uh, in its evolution and then through to the, the busy corporate world at Watson and Phillip. Um, it seems that you really have been at the forefront of some, some really quite remarkable changes uh, and I think that people will be fascinated to read not just the development of your career but how it took shape uh, in around that most iconic of uh, decades in the 1960s so thank you very much <coughs> for having joined us today it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you thanks very much indeed tom it's uh... <laughs> thank you the grocer's boy rides again is available to buy from all good online retailers and independent bookshops worldwide thanks for joining us today i hope that you'll tune in again soon
If you would like to find out more about advertising on the Extremist Publishing Podcast, please visit their website at www.extremistpublishing.com for details.